All right, you ready to get into the word? All right, if you have a Bible, turn or turn them on to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. going to read verses 1 to 23. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. Nehemiah chapter 4. Start at verse 1. Got it? Say, I got it. it. Right. Verse 1. When Sambalit heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, 
the officials and the rest of the people that work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall wherever you hear the when wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet join us there our god will fight for us so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out at that time i also said to the people have every man and his helper stay inside jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Amen. G.K. Chesterton said that the Bible teaches us to love our neighbor and to love our enemy. Probably because they are generally the same people. <laughs> Isn't it true that normally the people who are your neighbors end up being your enemies as well? What do you do when you know that you are in the will of God and people oppose you? What do you do when you know that you are in the will of God and people still oppose you? If you've been a Christian long enough, you know that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that everybody is going to like you because you're such a nice person. As nice as you are, people will still oppose you. And even when you're doing what you know is right, even when you're doing what you know is God's will and God's work, people will still oppose you. So what do you do when you know you're in the will of God and people oppose you? I'm not asking if you know you're outside the will of God and people are opposing you. That's obvious. But what do you do when you say, God, I know I heard you right. I know I'm following your word. I know you're with me, and yet I'm still facing opposition. What do we do when we face that as a church? When we're doing what we know God has asked us and called us to do, and yet there are still people opposing us. I think this story will give us great insight as to what we are to do as a church, what we are to do as individuals when we are in the will of God, and yet we're still facing opposition. Now, why in the world would someone oppose you when you know you're in the will of God? At least three reasons I can think of. Number one, jealousy. Sometimes people oppose you because they're jealous of you. Have you ever told a joke in a small group and everybody laughs and it's so funny and then somebody who was in that group goes to a larger group and they tell that joke and everybody's laughing and having a good time and just thinking, hey, that was my joke. Everybody thinks that person's funny. I'm really the one that came up with that. And so in that moment, you're jealous. And it could be anything. Whenever... You can feel like you have something that I want. This happens oftentimes in ministry. I want the position that you have. I want the title that you have. And because you have it, or because you thought of the idea before I did, now I'm jealous of you. This happens all the time in ministry. And sometimes we think, oh, well, because I came up with the idea, that means I'm the one who's supposed to lead it. 
I share something with you? That just because God might give you the idea for something doesn't mean that you're called to lead it. Sometimes there's somebody way more qualified to lead a ministry that maybe you came up with. Do you know whose idea it was to do a drama team? It wasn't me. It wasn't Shantae. It was my dad. <laughs> he said, Shall I think we should have a drama team. I said, okay. And I want you to lead it. Because I can't. <laughs> okay. And he has not said, I want you to tell everyone that I, it was my idea. The drama team has been successful because I have listened to the Lord. No, he didn't say any of that. He just said, God has given me this idea. You're more talented in this area. Let me give it to you. And you do it. There's no need for jealousy. You might come up with the greatest idea, but you say, you know what? I don't have the ability or skills. You, if, you, if you say, I want to do a drawing ministry for the Lord. Some of you have no business being in that ministry. I've seen how some of you write your penmanship. Oh, my goodness. This is letters. You're talking about words? That should be a job for Oren. Okay, not everybody, look, the, the Lord says to sing to him. He never said with a mic in front of you. So, <laughs> it's true. And I'm not saying because you sing bad. Not all of you, some of you. But, but, but sometimes people look at your position and they, they're jealous of you. So you're in the will of God. You're doing what God's called you to do. You're just trying to lead people in worship. You're trying to teach a son to lead a cell group. You're trying to do, and people are jealous because that I, I should be leading that. So it could be jealousy. Another reason why somebody might oppose you when you know you're doing the will of God is because of a loss of authority. When people can feel their influence grip slipping from their grip like a fish, they usually look and say, who is the one who's causing this? And that's the person I want to oppose. Sanballat, the guy we met in the beginning of this story, was a high-ranking political official. He was the governor of Samaria. And so when he saw the Jews coming to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, he saw my influence is being cut in half. These people are going to rebuild this city and I'm not going to have as much power. I'm not going to have as much authority in this region anymore. And because of that, he opposed them. Jerusalem around that time, there were other cities, and it was a great place for trade. And so with this city there now, if they rebuilt it, there would have been all these people to Jerusalem for trade. And so all the cities around, all of their uh, wealth would have started to erode because people are now going to Jerusalem to do business. And so he saw his pocketbook changing, he saw his influence changing, and he said, because of that, I'm going to oppose this work. Sometimes when people can feel their authority slipping from their fingers, they get really upset. The pastor says, you know what, I don't think you're supposed to lead this ministry anymore. You know what, I don't think you're supposed to teach this anymore. Your boss says, I'm going to now demote you, and I'm going to promote this person. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, because I've lost my authority. Now you're against everything this person does or says. Even if they say Jesus is Lord, you say, ah, well, I don't know. <laughs> That's how against them you are. So sometimes when you lose authority, it can cause you to oppose even what you know is the will of God. So not just jealousy, not just a loss of authority, but sometimes it's because of the influence of the devil. 
Now, a lot of you, you've been in church for a long time. Some, some of you have been in church since you were a kid. And you just know the devil exists, right? He's a real person, right? We, we, we believe that. But sometimes I think we forget how crazy that sounds to the world. Because they put the devil in the same category as the Easter Bunny and as Santa Claus and as Pikachu. They don't believe that there's, there's a person, the devil, the guy with, who wears red and the pitchfork. That's who you think is, is causing all of this? But we believe that there is a devil. We believe that he exists. And there are two... Um, C.S. Lewis, he says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. So this, you can go one way or the other. I feel like Christians, we swing too far in one direction. Sometimes people put way too much on the devil. The devil's behind everything. I hear it all the time. Just, oh, man, I'm, I'm late. The devil is busy. I was trying to come to church. The devil has been on my tail. He's busy. No, you are lazy. If I ever come late to church... Me, Shalat, if I'm late, it's because I was being lazy. It's because, you ever hit snooze? Doesn't that feel good to hit snooze? But you know when you hit snooze too much? And then you, 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 you pop up like, I did that this morning. I was supposed to wake up at 6.30. Didn't get to sleep till late. My wife was tapping me. Hey, it's uh, 7.30. And in my mind, because this happened before, where I've, I was supposed to be at 8 o'clock service, and I woke up at 8. <laughs> they got to sing some songs until I get there. What am I talking about? Ew, yes. <laughs> but so we put, way, we put way too much influence, the devil having way too much influence. Some of us, we need to stop... I'm um, saying is the devil made me do. We need to re stop rebuking the, the demon of haagen <laughs> and the demon of Krispy Kreme. You, you're not gaining weight because of the devil. You like sweets. We swing way too far in one direction. My car broke down. The devil is busy. No, cars break down. I ran out of gas. The devil is busy. No, you didn't put gas in the car. We, we go way too far and wonder, my kid is bad. The devil is busy. No, your kid's a sinner. And on and on and on I could go. We, we swing way too far in that direction, but I think we can also do the opposite. And this is, this is for me a personal issue because I feel like in Christianity we go way too far in one direction. So that my, my own personal disposition is to swing far the other way. And that is to almost never give the devil credit for being involved in certain things. This week, this passage has been in my head over and over. It's from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Ephesians chapter 12, 6 and verse 12. This is what Paul is, is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he says to them, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. 
You know what that means? Your, your, our struggle, our fight is not against stuff we can see. It's not against people. When people are opposing us, oftentimes, it is not them. There's something behind them. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want you to listen to this quote by J.I. Packer. He says, the real theme of Nehemiah chapter 4 is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent lurking behind the human opponents, critics, and grumblers who occupied his attention directly was Satan whose name means adversary and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, and God's praise. We think of Satan as our spiritual enemy, and so he is, but we need to realize that the reason he hates humankind and seeks our ruin is because he hates God. He, his and our creator. He is not a creator himself, only a destroyer. He is a fallen angel, the archetypal instance of good gone wrong. And now he seeks to only thwart God's plans and wreck his work, rob him of his glory, and in that sense triumph over him. When God initiates something for his praise, Satan is always there trying to keep pace with him, planning ways of spoiling and frustrating the divine project. Behind the people that are opposing you can often be the influence of the devil. It could be jealousy. It could be loss of authority. It could be the influence of the devil. And in reading this story, I have no doubt that behind Samballot and Tobiah's um, anger that these people are coming to rebuild the walls. Now, some, just a little bit of context. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And the cupbearer was the one who would kind of be next to the king and serve the king. And it was his job to taste the, the, the wine or whatever the king was drinking to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Now, I don't know how he signed up for that job. <laughs> you want to say, hey, you want to almost die a couple times a day? I don't know why he did that. But that was his job, to taste the, 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 the drink for the king to make sure that no one's trying to kill him. And so some friends had come back from Jerusalem saying that the exiles who had been living there, that the, the city was in ruins and that they were living in poverty. And this broke Nehemiah's heart. And he said, I, I wish I could do something. So he started to pray. And then God put it on his heart to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. So he's before the king. And the king normally knows how Nehemiah acted. And he can see he was sad. You see something? So he said, hey, there's... I can tell that you're sad. And this is not you know, an illness. This is a sick, uh, sickness of the heart. And then he explained to him what happened. He was scared because he didn't know what was going to happen because this same king had stopped work on the rebuilding of the temple earlier. And so he says what happened. And then you know what the king did? God gave him favor. And he said, you know, you know what? I will send you to Jerusalem. I'll send helpers. I'll send a cavalry with you. And I'll send you out there to do this work. So they get to Jerusalem. It's about a 55-day journey to get there. And when they get there, as soon as they start, they meet this dude, Sambala and Tobiah. This is in chapter 2. Just two of them at the first. Sambala and Tobiah. And one of the things that he said to him, he said, hey, uh, what are you doing trying to rebuild the wall? Are you rebelling against the king? Trying to intimidate him. Y you know, for Christians, one of the, the major ways we will deal with opposition is verbal attack. 
That is one of the main ways that you and I will face opposition is verbal attack. And in, in verses 1 through 3, we see Sambala and Tobiah coming to the Jews, and they, they use a verbal attack, and it is ridicule. Have you ever been made fun of? Have you ever had someone joke about the way that you look, the way that you walk, the way that you stand? It's very hurtful. And here are these people, they're standing there, and you're just there to do the work. And remember in chapter uh, 4 and verse 1, what did they start to say? They ridiculed the Jews. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? You're so weak. You're, you're weak. You're going to try to rebuild this wall? What do you think you can do some sacrifices, have a worship service, pray and sing to God, and that's going to make the wall come back up? Is that, is that what you're going to do? Oh, do you think you can rebuild it in a day? Do you realize how much work it takes to rebuild a wall? You guys are going to come here and just rebuild the wall. And then look at all the stuff you got to work with. A lot of it is burned. You can't even use it. And then Tobiah came in and said, hey, <laughs> look at all. And there's a whole crowd. And they're like, huh, if, if a fox jumped up on the wall, it would break the wall down. <laughs> and everybody, <laughs> and the Jews are just there just working, just like, wow. All we want to do is serve God. And there is a crowd of people around ridiculing what they're doing. Sticks and stones. They break my bones. But words will never hurt me. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I actually looked at where that came from. It came from the African Methodist Episcopal Church. <laughs> A guy tells a story. He goes into a cafeteria. He's gripping his, his tray. It's his first day there. He's new. And he's looking around. Can I sit anywhere? I don't know any of these people. And he gets to one table, and he stands, and he looks. And a couple of kids are looking up at him, and they just stare. And he's looking back at them, wondering, are they going to accept me? Are they going to let me sit down? And then one kid said, dang, you got a big nose. 20 years later. That still bothers him. He's still sensitive about that. Do you think it was easy for the Jews to sit there and to listen to these people ridiculing them and saying all these things about them? Because here's the thing about when people criticize you, oftentimes there's a kernel of truth in what they're saying. Don't you hate it when someone says something about you that you feel about yourself already? You're not very attractive. And you always think, you know, I'm not as attractive as all those other girls. I'm not as spiritual. You're not very spiritual. Yeah, you know, I'm not as spiritual as everybody else. And that can be demoralizing when you're trying to do what's right and you have a group of people telling you you're dumb, you're stupid, you are fighting an uphill battle for no reason. What are you doing. Ridicule could have a devastating effect on our faith. But when the enemy laughs at what God's people are doing, it's actually a sign that God is going to bless his people in a wonderful way. So because of this opposition, what was Nehemiah's response? Nehemiah's response was prayer. 
Look at it again at verse 4 of Nehemiah. His first reaction was prayer. Hear us, O God, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. May the things that they're saying about us turn back on them. So he's praying. He's, and then he starts getting a little dark here. He says, um, give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. What is he saying? May some foreign country come, snatch them, and take them away. Like, wow, Nehemiah, okay. Verse 5, he gets even more dark. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. When they come to church and ask for forgiveness, say no. Don't show them the Roman road. Just tear out the book of Romans and just give them a Bible with just Leviticus. That's all they have. Because they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, now Nehemiah, you're a man of God, but this prayer is kind of Kind of harsh, huh? If you ever read the book of Psalms, you know that, that, that David had very similar prayers to this. You know, we call them the imprecatory psalms. And imprecatory psalms are psalms where it seems like you're calling down curses. Break their teeth, O oh God. <laughs> Could you imagine singing that in church? Break their teeth, O oh God. About the enemies of God. So there are prayers where you're reading them, you feel very uncomfortable. Like, should I be reading this? Why is this in the Bible? Why is this person praying like this? So many scholars, liberal scholars will tell you, Do, this doesn't even belong in the Bible. They'll take certain psalms and say, do not quote those psalms in my presence. It's not God's word. Now here's the thing. The, the New Testament does call us to love our enemies and to pray for those who, per, who persecute us. But here's, I want to come to Nehemiah's defense a little bit. Not completely or totally. <laughs> because, remember, the, the Bible is a record of what people did and what they said. It's not always a record of what they should have done. But I don't think Nehemiah was totally off here for a few reasons. Um, number one, when it comes to these kinds of things, Nehemiah was praying for God's divine judgment against sin. God is always against sin. That he wants, he says that sin must be dealt with. And so Nehemiah is saying, God, I want you to deal with this. Now when he says, you know, don't blot out their sins, people argue about whether or not he's saying that, you know, whether or not they should not be given salvation or if he's just saying, just, you know, give them justice, divine justice. Not sure. But he, he does say that I want judgment against sin. Secondly, Nehemiah is not praying that he would be the one to do it, but he's saying, God, you do it. Remember, because vengeance is the Lord's. You, you do not have any right to go and, and enact vengeance for something someone has done to you. Which is crazy to me. I'm reading a book, or I already read a book on forgiveness, and to read what some people have gone through having someone murder their child 
And to know that the Bible says you personally do not have, God would be against you if you went and tried to murder that person because vengeance is his. That's, that's hard. But Nehemiah knows, God, vengeance is yours, and I'm praying that you do this. Thirdly, I, I think he is zealous. He is zealous for God's work and God's people, and he wants to protect that. He doesn't like it when he sees people mocking the things of God. I have that same thing. I hate it when I hear people talking bad about the church. I don't laugh when TV makes fun of Jesus. I don't laugh when they make fun of the Bible. When I have friends who are making religious jokes, I don't laugh because I don't find that funny. I think I, I am zealous. I defend you people because I love you. You're part of my family. Someone a while back, someone had offended them, and so they went to Facebook, and they make this post about people in the church. Knowing it was our church, I caught wind of it, saw it, called this person, and I said, hey, this is not the way to do this. Because the way it looks to the world, as if we just totally jumped on you and made a, a mockery of you, and, did, and that, they don't know the whole story. I don't want the, the, the name of our church and the church of Christ to be drugged through the mud. Amen. So delete it. And the person said, oh, you know what? You're absolutely right. And they took it off. Don't allow people to come to you and tell you crap about the church. Be zealous for it. And Nehemiah, he's the same way. I, this is God's work. He's given us this task, and I'm zealous for it being done. I think Nehemiah also remembered in Genesis chapter 12, remember when God is speaking to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, who's going to be the father of many nations and the, the Jewish nation, he said to him, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So I don't think Nehemiah is completely off. But as New Testament Christians... As, as people who are part of the new covenant, our primary goal is to try and lead wicked people to the forgiveness that is found in Jesus. That's our goal. Our enemies, people who hate us, who ridicule us, our job is to love them to Jesus, into the cross. That doesn't mean, though, that we cannot pray for God's work in, in, in providing justice and it doesn't mean that we can't pray that God would thwart plans Amen. to destroy his work. So you can love God, you can love his people, you can do all of that and not um, it's gone. All right. <laughs> all right, so his first response to this was prayer. That was his very first response, is prayer. Now, this is what happens next. Like always, the heat is turned up. They pray, and the Bible says that the wall was rebuilt to half its height. So they, they made some progress. How do you know? When people see you making progress, they just get even more angry. So here they come. It's verse 6, so we built the wall till all they reached half its height for the people who work with all their heart. Verse 7, now remember, in chapter 2, it's Sam Ballot. In Tobiah, and that's in verse 4 of chapter 2. And then in verse 9, it says, Tobiah, Sambalat, and Gershom. And now look at verse 7. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod 
heard that repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. I want you to notice something. The Samaritans are on the north. The Ammonites are on the east. The Arabians on the south. And the men of Ashdod on the west. So God's people at this moment are surrounded by a group of people. It started with two, now there's a group. Here's something you got to know about critics. Critics don't like to be alone. Critics run with critics. They, they like to get people, hey, I want you to join in my song of criticism. You sing soprano, and you sing alto, I'll sing tenor, and let us sing this song of criticism. They don't like to be alone. It's always just this, when they say, hey, who, who's complaining? Well, we believe. Who is we? They always have this one spokesperson who speaks for all of them. And they come, so it's, it's a group of them now, but before it was verbal attack, but now the heat is turned up. Now they are threatening you with physical violence. This is, this is much different, isn't it? Well, what was Nehemiah's response to this? And something I want you to notice in verse 8. It says, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Verse 9, but we prayed to our God. Now, verse 10 says, meanwhile, the people of Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said before they knew it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them and came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, there they will attack us. It's one thing to have opposition from the outside. It's another thing when that opposition gets inside the walls. When you start, how many of you know, when you get halfway done with something, that's when it's the, the hardest to keep going. They made, they made progress and now all of a sudden they're feeling the pressure. And now they're feeling the heat because now they're saying, we're not just going to ridicule you. We're going to actually come and fight against you. Now, it's not clear whether or not they were even going to do it. Remember, they have the authority of the king. The king sent them and said, yes, you can rebuild the walls. And so perhaps they were just bluffing, but they don't know that. And so what is Nehemiah's response? When people ridicule you, he said, I'm going to pray. When they turn up the heat and say, I'm going to attack you, what did Nehemiah do? Prayed. Verse 9, prayer. He said, but we prayed to our God. The appropriate response to all situations that we face in life is prayer. That is the appropriate response. Chris Rock tells a story of his mom and dad how every time they had a sickness, their solution to it was Robitussin. Because they didn't have insurance and all that stuff. They said, hey, you got a bee sting? Robitussin. Smallpox? Robitussin. Ebola? Robitussin. Did you break your leg? Put some Robitussin in there. Everything was Robitussin. Our every response to every situation in life should be prayer. Loss of job? Prayer. Cancer? Prayer. Bad kid? Prayer. Every situation should be prayer. And prayer is not icing on the cake. Prayer is not the cherry on top of the sundae. 
It's not the last thing we do. It's not the caboose. Prayer needs to be the first thing. It needs to be the priority. When you get sick, call the doctor, take medicine, but pray first. Prayer needs to be our number one response to opposition. John Bunyan said this, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Now in verse 9, his response is prayer. But I want you to notice also where it says, but we prayed in verse 9 to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I like the King James Version, it says, and they set a watch. I just, I just like that. They, he said, we're going to pray, but also we're going to post some people on the wall just in case you guys want to start tripping. Now you might say, Nehemiah. Isn't God going to take care of this? Isn't God going to be there for you? It's a lack of faith for you to put a guard up there to fight or something. That means that you really don't trust God, Nehemiah. You ever heard people like that? It's the idea that God intends prayer to be like magic. All you got to do is pray Say the magic words, don't forget in Jesus' name, and poof, all of your problems go away. But how many you know, life is not, is not something that you can, it's, it's something that comes to you in, in waves. There are times when situations and people and temptations come to you out of nowhere. How many of you have ever gotten a, a text or an email from the devil telling you when he was going to tempt you. <laughs> never. He never comes and says, I'm going to attack you tomorrow at 12. These people, they had no idea when this attack was coming. And so for Nehemiah said, yeah, we are going to pray. That's the first thing we did. But we, we also need to, po needs to post a guard. They, we need to be prepared for battle. The idea that Prayer means that you don't have to prepare it wrong. Prayer is not an excuse not to prepare. It is not unspiritual to have a plan B. It's not unspiritual to have a plan B. There was a woman, she was getting ready to get married, and she wanted to get married outside. And her family told her, yeah, that's a great idea, but, you know, just in case it might rain, you might want to have a plan B. She said, oh, no, 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 I've been praying, and the Lord has told me that I'm gonna, he's going to make the sun shine like we shine in the world. <laughs> said, but you should probably still have a plan B, you know, just in case. You never know. No, the Lord has spoken. I know what he has said to me. He has revealed it to me in my prayer time, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> Fiance said the same thing. Babe, I think maybe just in case we need to have a, another plan. She said, no, 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 I know what the Lord has said. No plan B. The day of the wedding, it rained so hard it flooded. People had flown out there. Flowers were bought. Food was prepared. Chairs were bought. All wasted. All the money was wasted. And because she thought, I don't need a plan B, I don't need to prepare. 
because she thought all I got to do is pray. It doesn't take any preparation. It doesn't take any work. Nehemiah knew it's not just prayer. This will sound wrong to say, but it's right. Sometimes prayer is not enough. Sometimes it's not just pray and everything takes care of itself. In 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah was given the word that he was going to die. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, in verse 5 and 8, he was praying, God, would you please heal me, heal me? And so he answers his prayer. In verse 5, he says, Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. So he said, hey, I want you to pray for your healing. You've been healed, but you need to do something. Take these, fig, these figs, make into a poultice. It's like a little dabbing thing and, and deal with that. And it says he recovered. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now? So for Hezekiah, even though God had promised, I'm going to heal you, there was still something that he had to do. And this is all throughout this passage. Verse 16 Verse 16 says, from that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. So we're going to continue to do what God's asked us to do, but we're going to be prepared just in case there is an attack. Don't become spiritually proud. Thinking that, oh, God's with us, God's with me, that means I don't need to do anything. Sometimes Christians are the most arrogant people. Yes, God is for us, God is with us, but we need to prepare sometimes. We need, to, we need to trust, know that God is with us, know that God is fighting for us, but he also wants us to also join him in that work. Reminds me of a story, I remember Muhammad Ali was on a plane, and you know, one of the greatest fighters of all time, and he was on this plane, and the stewardess came by and said, hey, Mr. Ali, good to have you on the plane, are we getting ready to take off, can you please put on your seatbelt? And she walked away, she came back, he didn't put the seatbelt on, so he looked at him and said, oh, uh, Mr. Uh, Ali, we, we need you to put on your seatbelt, please, and walked away. And he came back again. Seatbelt still went on. I said, uh, Mr. Ali, we need you to put on your seatbelt because we're getting ready to take off. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> Stewardess said, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> it's this beautiful balance. Yes, God has given us abilities and gifts. Sometimes you need a plane. You need someone with you. And so don't be spiritually arrogant. God, he has, he has rigged it so that prayer and work go together. They are not separate. They are not separate. There's a beautiful balance all throughout the story. Verse 9, it says they prayed, posted. Verse 13, he says, remember the Lord who is great and mighty and awesome. And then he says, and get ready to fight. So remember who God is. Get your sword. He's great and he's awesome. Get your gat. He's not telling them just praise and worship your way through. You can praise and worship your way through. Just be strapped. 
Not literally. Don't bring guns to church. <laughs> or knives. I know some of y'all have knives. Like. <laughs> Verse 16 again. There were workers and then there's fighters. Verse 20. He said There was a point where they said the, the wall is so spread out that if they attack this end, we're not going to be able to get there. So they had a guy with a trumpet. So if you're in this end, and he said, oh, here they come. Everybody run there. So he says, everybody run to that spot to fight, right? And then he says, our God will fight for us. Like, Nehemiah, which is it? Are we going to fight or is the Lord going to fight? You're both going to fight. God has rigged it so that prayer and work go together. He has not wanted to be just one or the other. Again, we often want prayer to do the work for us. When I was growing up in the kid, my mom told, you, told me, if you pray before you take a test, God will help you to do good on your test. I said, oh, really? She said, yes, he is faithful. And I said, okay, praise God. <laughs> So I took the test. I failed. So I came home and said, I got an F. You told me if I prayed that God would give, he would give me success. And she said, well, did you study? I said, you didn't say nothing about no studying. You said if I pray, I would pass. God has never said, I'm going to do all the work for you. I'm a Disney fanatic. I love Disney movies. One of my favorite movies is The Sword in the Stone. And there's a scene where Merlin is trying to help Wart kind of understand that he can be more than just, you know, someone who carries a shield and a sword for a knight. So he's, he wants to take him out into nature and to show him stuff, but he has all these chores he got to do. he got to wash the dishes. he got to sweep the floors. He's got to mop. And so... He's like, I got all this work. I can't go out with you, Merlin. He said, oh, okay, let me do something. So he took out his little wand. He said, one and a two and a... And all the, the, the pots and the, and the brooms and the mops came to life and started doing the work. Singing a song and going. And he said, all right, okay, let's go. And they just walked out, and they came, and all the dishes were just washing themselves. Brooms are br were just doing that. Sometimes we think prayer is like that. I just yeah. prayer, pray, and then God is going to do all the work for us, and I'm going to skip off and go and drink some Sprite. Why God does all the work. That, that's, that's not God's, God's plan. Lord, give me, help me to do this with all of my heart and to do this right. He says, absolutely, yes. Now make sure you get down there and do the work. If you're in the middle of the ocean and you want to get to shore, what do you do? You pray and then you row towards shore. You don't sit in the middle of the ocean, Lord, may you please deliver me. <laughs> I'm here in the middle of the ocean. I just want to do your will. Would you please get me out of the situation? He gave you two arms. There are two oars there. Yes, it will be some work, and he will give you the strength to do it. But you need to, to know it's not just prayer. Sometimes prayer is not enough. Don't expect success if you don't pray. But don't expect your prayers to be answered unless you're doing your part. My grandpa used to say all the time, we need to cooperate with God. God has a plan. God has things he wants to do in our lives, and it's not just, God, will you do this? Something says, I'm going to work with you to accomplish this. So in the face of opposition, we need to pray first, and then we need to work. In conclusion, I want to say two things, and then we'll be done. This week, I really felt like <clears throat> this passage was special for us as a church. Um, and so what I'm going to say now, I, I, I agonized over because I want to 
I want you to hear this in love. I don't want you to hear this as anger. I don't want you to hear this as some power trip or anything. That's not my heart. My heart is I love you and I want to see God's best for you. So I want you to take what I say in in that light. Um, But as a church, when we say we're going to do the will of God, we need to expect opposition. And we have our own issues now. Five years from now, we'll have different issues. And I don't want us to become a people who just believe we just kind of coast through this Christian life with everything just being peachy and everybody loving us and adoring us and say, hey, come on in. No, it's not always going to be what happens. But two things from this passage that I want, want to encourage you. Number one, that we need to commit ourselves to corporate prayer. I take this from verse 9. Look at it again. Verse 9. But we pray to our God. We. This is not a call to personal private prayer. Which is good. But that is not what we're calling you to. The public corporate prayer at this church is the most poorly attended meeting we have. Out of all the meetings where the entire church is invited, this meeting is the meeting that the least amount of people attend. Which is very ironic because it's the most important meeting. Nehemiah said, we prayed. We came together because we saw this threat. Why, why is it that we don't think it's important to pray together? Personal prayer is great, but God meets us in a way that he does not meet us alone when we come together. Why is that? And I speak specifically to those who call yourselves covenant members. If you are a covenant member, it means that you have said, I am covenanting myself with you as a church. I'm going to submit myself to the leadership who is here, the vision of the leaders who are here. I'm going to give of my time. I'm going to give of my money. I'm committing myself to you. It's almost close. It's as close as you can get to a marriage. I'm with you all the way. Sickness, health, no matter what disagreements, I'm with you. And whatever you think is good for us, I'm going to be there. And yet the majority of covenant members do not attend this prayer meeting. Regardless of how many times we announce it, how many times we put it in a newsletter, and at some point you have to start asking the question, why? And of course I could go and ask people individually, but I'll, I'll probably never do that. But why is it that we don't think that we should be together praying? It's one night for the entire month for one hour. And if you've been there, you know we're very good. We do not go over one hour. Why, why is that? And, and I think the reason is that we don't feel the opposition. Mm. 
If you knew what we were up against, you would pray. If you knew what lies outside the walls coming for us as a body, you would not think that it is not important to pray. These people said, we need to pray. We got armies. We're surrounded. We don't see any allies around us. The world is getting more and more and more hostile to the church. In other countries, it's been happening, but it's happening with us. We can go into a whole discussion about how we face opposition as a church. We have governmental opposition, cultural opposition. If you watch TV now, you know it's, it's not just entertainment. It is now becoming edutainment. Whether through entertainment, trying to educate you about things. And so in all TV shows, you see, in almost all TV shows, you see this idea of homosexuality being fine. And they make you feel really, 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 really good about this one person. Oh, it, I just wish Lucius would just, would just accept Jamal. And before you know it, as a Christian, you start saying, it's, it's not that bad. You start forgetting what the Bible teaches. More and more and more and more hostile to the people of God. And so with that coming against us, with our struggle not being against flesh and blood, with all this happening, the place God has called us to is this place to pray and to say, God, we're crying out to you. Would you please deliver us? But the reason we don't come is because we don't feel the opposition. We don't feel the threat. And this is not our church problem. This is all over. This is not a village issue. This is a church issue. People don't see the value in coming together and pray. They don't see the power in coming together to pray. And hear this as an encouragement and admonishment. Please hear this this way. I want you to experience God's power. I want you to experience God's presence. I want you to experience his working in our church. But listen, you can take the spiritual temperature of a church by looking at its prayer life. Not this gathering. See me on Wednesday. See me on Friday. See me on Tuesday. We ain't got nothing Tuesday. I know. See me. Call me up. Let's hang out. We've been doing men's ministry. There's women's ministry. There's all sorts of opportunities for us to come together. But one night... A month, we've said, let's come together. And it's going to only increase as we get um, into Petaluma. My dad has already said, this house, this place will be called a house of prayer for the nations. We're going to make this place a place of prayer. So that's my first encouragement. We need to commit ourselves to corporate prayer. So I was going to do this in invitation, but let me just do it now. I want to encourage you. Prayer is this Friday. My encouragement to you. If you are a covenant member and you haven't come, haven't come, Spurgeon talks to his people and he says, you know, I know some of you don't come to the prayer meeting because you le legitimately have stuff you're doing. You're, you're at some place you legitimately can't come. But some of you, he said to them, I said, I know you're not doing anything. Amen. You're just not coming. But he said, I'm speaking to, the, to you who you have nothing to do on those nights. Come. If you say, I, this church is my church. Those leaders, I want to follow that leadership. I, I believe that what God is putting in their heart to do is really the will of God. I want to lovingly encourage you. Come out. This, it's not, I, look, if, if what I'm saying, you say, ah, whatever, don't come. 
Because I don't, I don't want you to come out of obligation. I don't want you to feel coerced into coming. Yeah, it might feel harsh, but sometimes we need that. But when we get here, man, the, 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 the power and the presence of God. And I really believe sometimes God said, I want the people who say that they're serious about this thing, I want you to be here. So I, I just want to ask, anybody who say you're a covenant member. Now, if you're not a covenant member, you, you're invited to come. But some people have said, I'm committed to this church. And it might be a sacrifice for some of you. I know we all come from far away, but man, we can, the Lord can work it out. Secondly and finally and quickly, we need to commit ourselves not just to corporate prayer, but we need to commit to prepare and work. What sense does it make for us to have a prayer meeting where we come together at the engine room and we say, Oh Lord, would you save our neighbors? But we never say anything to them about Jesus. We never give them a track. Lord, would you bring people to our church? We want the seats to be filled, and yet we never invite anybody. Lord, please provide monetarily. We want money. We want to be able to build things and go here and go there. Lord, would you please provide for that, and yet we don't give anything. Listen, you can come to prayer meeting, and we can pray and cry out to God and lay on our faces and shout and do all that, and then walk out of here and do nothing, and nothing will happen. I'm asking you to commit yourself to corporate prayer. I'm not asking you to commit yourself to pray by, by yourself. That's great. I'm asking you to commit to coming together. What does it look like if I'm sitting here and I'm looking to my left and my right and I'm saying, who's with me? Who's with us? Can you imagine the Jews in, on, the, on the wall as an, as an enemy is coming? They're looking around and there's no one near them? Man, I want to see people there. I want to be able to see, oh, there's Janice, there's Frida, there's Gina, there's Joe. There's Charlena, there's Marquila, and they're with me, and they're crying out to God. And then we leave from this place, and we flood this world with grace. We flood this world with mercy and the gospel of Jesus. We don't just think praying is all we got to do. We also go in and say, now we got to do the work. Now we got to prepare. Let's pray.